Today's episode is brought to you by Create Engage, the digital marketing agency for the disruptive management consultancy. Digital marketing has moved forwards, but most consulting firms haven't. Many consulting firms still see their corporate blog as their sole digital marketing channel and find themselves frustrated when these blogs yield little, if any, results. For those consultancies that understand digital marketing, though, it can be a huge asset and help them achieve rapid business growth. In fact, at Create Engage, we've recently written a case study of one successful consulting firm that used digital marketing to help them grow over 400% in just three years. Having spent countless hours researching consulting firms and consulting leaders for this podcast, it became very clear that while some firms do digital marketing well, the vast majority of consulting firms struggle to leverage its power and don't know where to start. To help those of you who want to harness the power of digital marketing to grow your consulting business, but don't have the knowledge, capacity, or in-house capability to do so, I launched Create Engage, the first digital marketing agency for the management consulting industry. As former consultants ourselves, we understand the challenges that you face when it comes to delivering effective digital marketing that engages prospective clients and generates leads. Having worked in the industry, we understand consulting buyers, what resonates with them and what doesn't. This enables us to harness the latest in digital marketing in a way that aligns with your brand and your market positioning to attract the prospective clients that you're looking to target. We understand that each consultancy is unique and have a range of services to help you shape, implement and sustain effective digital marketing strategies that deliver results, regardless of where you are on your digital marketing journey. If you would like to find out more, about how Create Engage can help you use digital marketing to take your business to the next level, then send me an email at nick at createengage.co.uk or go to our website, createengage.co.uk, where you can download that free case study that breaks down the digital marketing strategies used by one successful consulting firm to help them grow over 400% in just three years and gives you the secrets they used so that you can apply them in your own firm. If you want to outpace your competitors and stand out in the crowded consulting market, then get in touch. We'd love to help you grow your business through digital marketing. Hi, and welcome to Climbing Consulting. Today's guest is Seb Chambers, Managing Partner of CIL Management Consultants. Seb was introduced to me by one of my previous guests, Dom Morehouse, as someone I must get on the show, and he certainly didn't disappoint. Seb's route to managing partner is a really interesting story and one that, while uncommon, gives an insight into a lesser travelled route that I know many of you will be fascinated by. Instead of climbing the ladder to partner, Seb brought into CIL something that we discuss in detail in today's episode and grew the firm from there. Before you think, oh, well, that's okay. If you've got plenty of money, that's easy to do. Seb didn't. And there is a lot you can learn from Seb's approach here, particularly for those of you who are maybe at the mid to senior end of consulting and have aspirations to buy into a business yourself. But this was only part of Seb's story, and we cover a whole range of topics in this conversation, including growing a consulting firm where your head office is based outside of London, and why Seb sees their Froome head office, which is a small town about 30 minutes out of my now hometown of Bath, as an asset to the firm. Seb's advice for those looking to climb the consulting career ladder, as well as those with aspirations to build a career at the top for as long as he has. 
and the CIL meme wall. Yep, you heard me right, meme wall. It's the first I've seen in any consulting office. It was hilarious and I didn't even know the people on it. But more importantly, I discussed with Seb what this says about CIL's culture and why culture is critical, both when you're starting out your firm and when you're growing your business. I really enjoyed this wide-ranging conversation with Seb and it was great to dig into topics that I'd not discussed with any other guest before. Whether you're just starting out in consulting, you're looking to climb to partner in your firm, or you have aspirations to follow Seb's path and buy into a firm and be a part of growing that business, there's something in here for everyone. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Seb Chambers. Hi there, Seb. Welcome to the show. Nick, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be on um, and probably worth saying a, a big thank you to a former guest of mine, Don Morehouse, for setting this up. I asked him, who should I speak to? And he put you top of the list. So really interested to to hear about the CIL journey and find out everything that Dom said and, and more during this conversation. Yeah, no, very good. Uh, Dom, is, uh, Dom is our illustrious chair and has been for, for about five years So uh, and uh, helped us hugely as a business. And this is a great connection. Fantastic. So probably worth starting for those who maybe don't know you so well, just with your background and how you got to where you are today. Sure. Well, I'm Seb Chambers. I'm the managing partner of CIL Management Consultants. I didn't necessarily set out to do that uh, when I was uh, when I was leaving university. So if I, I perhaps just just run through that a bit. I read economics at Manchester and joined PwC. It was Pricewaterhouse then, but obviously PwC today in in London. And did five years there. Um, I qualified as an accountant and also had a chance to work on due diligence and consulting assignments, not just in the UK, but also in Hungary. And I've had a couple of goes of, of working in Africa, taking career breaks. The first teaching, actually before I went to university, and then I took a break when I was at PwC to work on an aid, aid programme in Botswana with, with my wife. When uh, I got back from working in Hungary, after I'd been at PwC about five years, we thought, it was perhaps time to, to leave London, have two small children. And I was keen to go into industry and did that and went into uh, a business called Hayward Williams, um, mostly making making things for the window and door industry and also uh, also for um, some products into automotive, again, mostly windows. I, after a fairly short period of time, went and worked at a business called Door Panels, where we made um, front doors and building panels which I sold into the UK, double glazing industry, but also into in, in France and Germany and, and, and more widely. And that was a great opportunity, relatively young person, to get into a business that was big enough to do stuff like import from India and sell in Germany, and uh, but small enough for for me to be able to understand every aspect of it. So I went in as FD. I'm not actually a very good accountant, um, and there was a very good accountant in the business called Graham. And so I, I went on and... Uh, became uh, operations director and, and ran the factory. It was a very good, very good experience. Um, also at the time, I think I sold a million pounds worth of plastic doors. Uh, so that was uh, something of a record in the marketplace at the time on, on a single transaction. So so that's what I was doing. And I, I got to uh, sort of early 30s and was thinking, and that business had been quite successful. With, uh, when I went in, it was making loss of about half a million. By the time I finished, uh, the, the team had got it to a, a million pound profit. But in the context of a large industrial group, that was not really very significant. It felt like hard work for us. 
and I started to hear a bit about private equity and wanted to get involved in the ownership of a business so that, you know, there'd be perhaps a bit more in it for me and my family. And so I started looking for uh, private equity-backed opportunities to buy into. Um, and naively, I kind of thought that would be possible. And uh, I think, with like with most enterprises, actually, no, without naivety, nobody would do anything. Yeah. So um, I did manage to find, I found, identified a couple of opportunities. I actually went and worked at KPMG for a bit on the demerger of Carillion from Tarmac. I worked on the Tarmac bit, I hated to add. Um, uh, and so that was just, that was quite an interesting experience. And while I did that, I was looking for uh, opportunities to buy into. And at the same time, the founder of CIL had moved to our village. And having thought that I would buy into a manufacturing type business, because living out in the uh, edge of Wiltshire and Somerset, um, there's not a lot of professional services. So I, I assumed that I'd be sort of putting my toe tectors on again and uh, working in a manufacturing type environment uh, or logistics but ended up uh, having this opportunity to buy into, into CIL, which was a very small business at the time. It had a turnover of about half a million. Um, so it was a single partner founder and uh, with uh, just three or four employees, one of whom, um, Giles, also brought in to the business at the same time. And we gradually got the opportunity to buy out the others. Um, that was in 1999. So, yes, it's I, I came at it from a... An unusual angle. Uh, interestingly, we did a buyout of CIL in '99, which was originally going to be private equity backed, mm. but we ended up getting backing from Ernst and Young, who bought 51% of the business. And then subsequently, we bought Ernst and Young and some of the original other founding shareholders out in 2004. So that's uh, um, so I quite a journey. So my dream of doing something. And, and getting some equity in it was fulfilled. But interestingly, it had taken me to an understanding about the private equity industry at a time when CIL was ripe to move fully into working with private equity-backed companies. And so so that sort of initial thought and idea I had was helpful just to have to, have to be at the, the right moment where, where CIL was starting to work with private equity. So it was just a bunch of fortuitous uh, coincidences, which I, I can't claim to have uh, had some brilliant ideas, but I suppose I was very fortunate. Charles and I particularly were very fortunate to be able to recognise that there was value in CIL and, and we had the chance to do something fun. To your point, series of fortuitous circumstances, but actually from a professional services or management consulting perspective, a, a very, I'd say, very unusual approach to becoming partner and growing in a firm and then growing it. I, you mentioned there you you wanted to go down the private equity route of yep. buying into something. What was it that led you to decide that that was the route you were going down as opposed to what you might call the more traditional consulting route of going back into a firm and climbing to equity, if you like? Yeah, I think I came to CIL as a management buy-in candidate first that was what I was looking to do. While I was working at KPMG, they were also looking to be the 51% investor in CIL. So I was able to see that from the point of view of being in, in the big four and what became the big four. And the consulting guys within KPMG saw this funny little research-based consultancy and thought, well, we can use that as a cheap resource for data and information about markets and we'll do the clever stuff. 
And um, so actually that inside information gave, you know, I was able to talk to the founder and other senior people within CIL, and we we took the deal to EY, um, who Giles had met at a CIL conference, and we, we took the deal there. So it's a, I would say I was more, you know, personally driven by buying into a business as opposed to a traditional career structure. I think if I'd wanted a traditional career structure, I'd never have left London. And, you know, and I'm probably headed to, um, headed out with a view to, to get the top of a quoted company, which Harry Williams was. And by the time I was 30, I realised that that was not what I wanted to do. Um, and uh, I thought I would have more fun working in a small organisation and growing it. And it just so happened that the best opportunity I had was a consulting business. Something that that might be of interest to, to listeners uh, is that you don't always know what you're good at. And you, particularly in your 20s, I think, and when I was working on the budget uh, in the door panels and 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 helping with the strategic planning, I um, remember Gerald, our marketing manager, saying, I said, you're really good at this. And of course, because I've trained at PwC, it didn't occur to me I was good at it. It's just kind of the sort of thing that we did. And actually, so when I had that opportunity of joining a consulting business, I kind of had that in mind that this might be something I'll be pretty good at. Um, so I'm not sure that's the case, but uh, <laughs> uh, uh, but at least that, you know, it was just that that chance comment from a colleague when you suddenly realise that mm. what you see is, you know, pretty straightforward. Actually, somebody else might see as, as having a, a special skill. To that point, though, was there a taking a jump into any, any career path or, t- or making any decision where you take a different route always comes with questions in your mind like you said will I be good enough will it be right for me and unknowns what questions did you ask yourself at at that juncture when you had spent five years like you said turning around the door business which is in the manufacturing sector you know to, to bucket it somewhere and you're now faced with going into professionals back into professional service in a consulting environment what questions did you ask yourself to help you decide that you were making that right decision and it was, to your point, the right step into something different as opposed to a, potentially a risk and a big step into the unknown? I, it's a good question. I, I think that careers make terrific sense when you look back. They don't yeah. make any bloody sense at all when you're <laughs> looking forward. And, and I do think I'm a great believer in encouraging people to daydream and to think about you know think about where their career might take them Mm. so that you're then more likely to find the opportunities the random the random fact that Chris you found a CIL moved to our village you know we live in a very small village um we're we're next door neighbors so how did you tell me about that how how did the that that conversation come up was it as simple as we've moved to the village this is what I do or so and we met and obviously we, we, we became friends and our, our, Chris is probably nearer my dad in age but as it happens Maria and I had children very early and, and uh, Chris and Claire had children a bit later so our children are actually all about the same age we became really good family friends and I was telling Chris a bit about what I wanted to do and he was encouraging me to contact local firms and try and seek opportunities to buy into them and uh, not that I had any money to do that but, um, but that's the fun of private equity um, and then it occurred to me that actually joining in with Chris and Giles could be really interesting. And mm. as it happened, it was at a point where they were looking to do an MBO, MBI, and uh, and we managed to get a, a, a trade partner in the form of Ernst & Young. So mm. it, it was just, 
yeah, I mean, I'd love to say it was all beautifully worked out, <laughs> but equally, no, I was open to opportunities. But I had, I had a sort of broad plan in the sense of I wanted to use my ingenuity to stay in this lovely part of the world, and to get an opportunity to, you know, with some decent prospects for me and my family, and. Beyond that, I was then open to opportunity and mm. CIR was, was that opportunity. I think there's a great point in there as well, and it's a subtle one actually, of, of tell people what you are looking for even if you don't know. Yeah. That that point that you, you had that conversation and it so happened they were looking for someone wouldn't have come about if you'd kept that to yourself, which so often I think some people can do. Yeah, I agree with that. You made a point there, and I'll be completely honest, the, the private equity world is one I know very little about. Yes. And at the start, you talked about buying into the company. And then you mentioned there around the fact you didn't have the money yourself and you found a trade partner. And I think it'd be really interesting to spend some time on that because I know a lot of people who are, let's say, similar position, similar age to where you were. Yes. Who that is a, let's say, a route they would potentially love to do, but either don't know it's open to them or don't have a clue where to start. How does one go about doing something like that? Well, I think it's it's good to understand, I suppose, the economics of getting ownership in a business. There's a lot of focus at the moment on startups, and I'm mm. involved in a few, and that's really interesting. And then people sort of tend to sort of think that there's startups or there's kind of HSBC and Sainsbury's. And CIL as a business, actually, we, we work on work for companies that are in the middle, and, and they tend to... To, to, to get to a point where they will need to be backed by private equity. And I, I don't, um, if, if you want to understand more about that, um, I'll give my contact details at the end of the interview, and I'm really happy to chat someone through that. But the thing that um, people don't realise is that people need young people who are ambitious to run things. There's a shortage of management in almost every industry you can think of. And, so, and there's money there to, to back those people. And it's about, it's about hunting out those opportunities. And being prepared to be, you know, like with any, any anything entrepreneurial, you typically have to be prepared to be paid a lot less than you could if you went on a traditional route. I, I suspect my route to partner here, I, I'd have struggled to have been paid less in any other firm. Um, <laughs> but um, you know, it's but, worked out okay now. I take it. Yeah, but that's yeah, exactly because you've, but but one was prepared to do something entrepreneurial, mm. and it was it was therefore able to get get resources to be backed. The thing that's attractive in professional services and, and one or two other areas like areas of the media is that you can get ownership in something without having to have a huge amount of capital to buy machinery and equipment so forth. Mm. And that's what makes IT and professional services and bits of the media so attractive. And that's why the UK is we're a highly entrepreneurial country. And that's that's because talent is attracted it gets attraction to those areas where it's possible to get ownership without owning the factory, as it were, because, mm. you know, our modern factories are rented offices with IT equipment, and that's that's investable for someone without a lot of cash or with a bit of backing in a way that when when the whole economy made doors, in my case, or cars and aeroplanes and, and, and so forth, that was much more difficult to do because you needed a lot of capital. Equally, you know, some of our manufacturing industry has suffered because people don't get those ownership opportunities, and therefore they don't—they often don't retain the talent. The talent get, tends to go in, will often go into professional services. So, wider economics debate. But, mm. but if you want to get ownership in something, and you don't have a lot of capital, it is possible. But you've got to be careful. You've got to think carefully about which sectors. And consulting is a classic area where you can create a business uh, without a huge amount of capital to start with. 
So, and that's a really good point around just the cost of capital in an industry like ours. And you aren't the first guest to highlight that as a point of, as a business, you know, whether you're buying in or starting up, yeah. it's quite a good one because it's cash generative very early on. The other side of that coin is that while consulting in the good times is cash generative, every consulting business faces a cliff and that's ever present. And if the economy takes a hit, your your business could fall off the cliff. Yeah. For people who are maybe in that position that you were, and so answer this either in the questions you asked or the advice you give to others is, what sort of due diligence should someone in that position you were be doing to make sure if they're going to invest a, a sum of money or get debt to fund that position, which again, at a certain age would be is a big bet. What questions did you or do you advise people to be asking on the due diligence side to make sure that firm that they're going to become part of the management team of is solid, stable, and has the prospects to fulfil the goals they have for themselves? Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question. So the single single thing I'd say is that a consulting firm needs to be able to withstand an overnight drop of revenue of 40%. And, um, and that's really quite simple maths on a P&L. And a business can either stand or it can't. When you say overnight, is that if we make 40% revenue this month, this year? So in operational consulting, you tend to have longer contracts. We're in strategy, so we tend to, you know, at any one time, six weeks' time, who knows what the company's doing? <laughs> uh, certainly in 12 weeks' time, you know, we, we don't have enough business for in seven or eight weeks' time to cover our core costs. And, and, and that's, that's the business we're in. I've been in three significant downturns in my career. Uh, when I was at PwC, we had the 91 downturn, which was very, very stark. Lots of our clients went bust, a lot of redundancies. I was doing my exams at the time. And some of the firms said, if you pass your exams, you just get to stay in the firm. If you fail the exam, you lose your job as well. And the wow. exam pass rate was 50%. Um, so so that, was, that was a pretty um, exciting start to my career. In 2001, we had a 40% correction. And in 2009, a 55% correction. But because we planned for a 40% correction in 2007, uh, we... Um, Sorry, we being CIL. CIL. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it was a bit worse than that was fine. We, we, we were able to... It was within the margins of error. And uh, we were able to go through 2009 without making any redundancies. But you can only do that if you've got a business model, you know... If people are getting fired uh, in your client base, you know, consulting is expensive. So most consulting is cyclical. Um, and uh, and it's the best way of dealing with that, we've tried diversifying. The best way of dealing with it is just have a business model that copes with um, some pretty serious ups and downs. And if this is part of your proprietary side of your business and something you can't share, don't worry. I want to just dig on to that because, you know, no one has a crystal ball, yeah. and me least of all, but... If you work on the assumption that corrections come roughly every 10 years. Yeah, something like that, yeah. We are now overdue one. Um, some people think Brexit's going to be the next correction, but you can probably be sure it will be something we don't expect. Yeah. How do you, when you say your bus- you, you structure your business model so that you can withstand that 40%, operationally, what does does that mean? Is that you hold a reserve of 40%? How do, how do you do that? No, so the cash planning and reserve planning, that... That is important, and we do hold mm. reserves. Actually, if we have a downturn in trade, that's quite good for cash for us because we have less costs going out. Everyone in the company is, is part of the bonus scheme, so mm. it's an element of sharing the profits in the good times. And 
you can't share a profit that's not made. So um, that gives us some really good downside protection and senior staff in particular, partners and senior staff, you know, bonus of very high proportion of remuneration, but you know, but that affects everyone, everyone in the firm shares in that risk and reward. And we're also very careful about things like property leases. You know, that's always a big decision to make. IT decisions used to be worse. Nowadays, it tends to be a bit more incremental. You pay for stuff as you need it. And frankly, you know, it used to be, you know, getting on a new laptop was a major decision. And now, you know, the, the costs have come down to the point where you, it's, it's not, didn't feel so bad. Whereas property, and in our case, we've got two leases in central London, a lease in Chicago, as, as well as um, a lease in, in Somerset. And so we take those decisions pretty carefully. And our second London lease, for example, is with WeWork, mm. which is on a much shorter notice period. So that, because um, I'd rather we all work from home a bit and but carried on working than either may having to make people redundant, A, or B, um, having to, um, you know, just, just work for the landlord. So, so that's um, just being careful about making hiring decisions. You know, somebody needs to be on a very high fixed income that can work for another firm. Because there are those opportunities there. Yeah. That doesn't mean to say that people in a firm like this aren't really well remunerated. And we obviously benchmark our remuneration against other strategy firms and, and, and the big firm, big force consulting arms. And that's important to us that people are well rewarded for the work they do. But uh, but we structure those rewards such that uh, we all um, you know participate in, uh, in 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 risk and, and reward. You mentioned there around the the office locations and yeah. like you said we're we're here today in your your lovely office in Froome in Somerset. Um, for those who know me or have followed me throughout this, they know I've recently moved to Bath, which is about half an hour drive north of here. And it was just some of those points you mentioned there. And I'm really curious. I think I know the answer of how you had your head office here. You mentioned the founder was based in your village. But actually, your approach to growing a consulting firm where the head office, if you like, is outside of London, because most of the people I've had on this podcast to date, they have been based in big cities. So even Dom, who we mentioned, while he lived in Bath, Morehouse, his consulting firm was based in the city. The best question is probably, what has made you keep the head office here and what benefits or challenges has that had from a growth perspective as you've grown CIL from when you joined? I think probably that the head office is a slight misnamer in the sense that, yeah, I mean, a, com- a company needs to have a formal head office uh, and, and, and that's here. And we've got 75 people in the city in London. So it's not, it doesn't. And, and as you write, you know, I mean, our competition is based in, in New York, Chicago, Boston, mm. London, a little bit in frankfurt a little bit in paris you know singapore and a little bit in australia i mean it's Mm. very much you know the major world you know super cities if you like and the relevance i think to having an office somewhere like this is if you think about as people maybe want to combine their career with family life buy a house have somewhere decent for the children to go to school Actually, central London, even in a well-paid profession like this, is quite hard. We have very few people with school-aged children who live in central London. So people either tend to have quite long commutes in or they have the opportunity of um, base themselves in Froome. So if you take me up, probably in London two to three days a week, probably in Froome one to two days a week with clients a day a week. Might be a typical um, 
my client face responsibilities a bit less than some of the other partners because I, I have more responsibilities in the firm. But that's that's my rough diary, and that works. That works pretty well. You need to spend time with clients, um, and and a lot of a lot of our people want to live and work in in central London, but this provides an opportunity. Operationally, you'd have to say it's a pain, but we we work as a single operation. The other thing that location like this gives you is you get, you know, it's very easy in a consulting business to concentrate on the client-facing staff, but actually, you know, the, these are companies like any, anything else, and they need accounts team, a marketing team, an HR team, IT team, and the quality of people uh, that you can get, and the opportunity to work in an organisation like this, which is unusual outside of London, is uh, gives really good career opportunities for people, and we. We take the career development of everyone seriously, not just the client-facing staff, but I think we had four or five members of the support team doing professional exams last year, mm-hmm. HR, marketing, finance and IT. You know, so that feels uh, something that we can, we, we can give, we can get high-quality people who are really keen to stay with the firm and, and that, that is easy to do in someone like Somerset. Yeah, and I think that especially that's a really good point, like you say, for those people in the firm who maybe on the aren't on the client facing side where their salaries aren't traditionally as high the challenges that you highlight in london are just amplified and so being able to work in a, a business like this and the, the dynamic nature of it and the fun nature of it will come on to the uh, the staff room here as i promised because um, it's so far one of the best i've seen is something actually very unusual now help me with the the timeline here that you am i right that as a firm you started in Froome but grew out to london uh, no, I mean, the, the long history of the firm is Chris was based in West London, uh, but at that, when he started the firm, it was all freelance. They had a small service office in Chiswick. Uh, and then when he moved his family down here, he then took on Giles and initially a couple of others as the first sort of full-time people working. And, and they were probably initially based in a, in a cow shed. Uh, in a farmyard, you know, sort of converted <laughs> office. Yeah. So then we moved our London office within Ernst & Young's office in central London. And then we took the decision a few years ago to really invest in and make a virtue of having an office in the West Country. So it was either that or kind of, you know, and, and Dom, our chair, was very good at forcing us to have a proper debate. Look, guys, you've got this office here because Giles and Seb live there. Um, but that's not actually a business reason. Yeah. So that made us... Realised, for example, that that that, that um, our consultant loyalty, or the amount of time, length of time that um, staff churn was better in the West Country, and, and and also this this point around support staff. The thing that's really changed in the last couple of years is we do a lot of work on what makes a company attractive for millennials to work in, and we've got people that love climbing or surfing, love living in Bath wanting to come straight to work for us here rather than working in London first. And that's and so by having a decent, reasonably well-invested office, people see, oh, this is a serious company, but I'm, I'm, I'll spend some time travelling to London, travelling to clients, and as I get more senior, probably a bit more of that. But but actually, I can can get based and, uh, uh, you know, and people can buy a flat or a small house here in their mid-late 20s, mm. where even if you're well-paid in London, it's probably about 10 years later for most people. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point. Like, like I said, we we've moved down here, so we're we're slowly learning the. You've been converted. Well, we we were so I was uh, the very potted history is I came down here on a project with a previous consulting firm to Bath and fell in love with the city um, and have 
it's funny when we tell friends that we we've moved to Bath or tell anyone actually they the de facto response is, oh, was that for work? And then there's almost a bit of shock when we say, no, there's no other reason than we like the place. Um, but I think very similar to to your story when you mentioned with your family, we don't have we don't have children yet. But London, unless you have a, a certain amount of income and a serious level of income, can be quite challenging unless you are willing to commute very far or live in somewhere that's very small. And we like the idea of living in the country and while... We've realised for anyone who's thinking of Bath, it's not as cheap as you'd think. It's very expensive. When you move slightly further out, and to your point, Froome and surrounding areas, I mean, you can you can buy a lot of house for a very little amount of money compared to London. Yes. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And that that is attractive to people. And if you think of an American client, they don't care where you're based. And as long and you know, we tend to go and see our clients and work with the companies that we're working with. You know, so it's it actually I almost feel like People don't realise the potential that the internet's given for people to mm. perhaps have more imaginative locations in their business. That's a that's a really interesting point, like you say, around actually the client imperative. Because I think a number of people would assume if I want to be taken seriously, while you do have obviously the offices in London and Chicago, like you mentioned, there's almost that I must be based in London for people to to be willing to work with me. And I think like you say, the you are obviously seeing here that the power of the internet and building a good reputation through what you do is that's the more important driver than whether you're based in London or Hong Kong or wherever it may be. I, I don't know if that's a, a fair I think that's true. I mean, when when the business was mostly based in sort of on the Wiltshire Somerset border and we had a very small presence in London, I think that was challenging for us. And so I think we kind of made a central decision to invest heavily in building our team in London and getting decent locations and and, and trying to create a, a nice office environment, make it fun. So you do need to get the right balance, but there's certainly a place for, you don't have to have everyone based in London or New York. Mm. And interestingly, we've gone to Chicago because the lifestyle in Chicago and the access to the rest of the States is just much better than New York. We, we research market entry for a living, yeah. so we ought to. We, we need to. John Whiteman, who's responsible for the um, for opening up our business in the states, one of the, our industrial partner here, he sent a team off to research it, and we all assumed the answer would be New York, and the answer mm. came back Chicago, and it's based around the fact that um, a lot of growth companies, and private equity, and consulting is just better catered for out of Chicago. For anyone who is looking at starting their own consulting business. And maybe they're at that point you were where they have a bit of flexibility. They could, they're either based out of London already and, but could go back in or they're thinking of leaving London, but they're on the fence. What would you counsel someone in terms of the order with which they are most likely to achieve success? What I mean by that is, would you say to someone, start in London, then build outside? Or are there steps that you could put in place such that if someone's listening to this and they're based in a, a comparable town somewhere else, they could start a consulting firm in their locale, but with the right steps, build that city presence that gets them the credibility they need, let's say. It's very important in consulting that the senior people need to be part of, you know, part of the office. And people will tend, if we didn't have partners based in our Somerset office, or in Chicago, those operations would not be taken seriously by our own staff. 
much more important. Clients actually can't see inside a business, mm. whereas it's much more important actually how you how you perceive yourself. It took me a long time in my career to learn that, but it's it's true. If you take Newton Europe, for example, it's a brilliantly successful operational consulting business. You know, they have done that fantastically, but based on based in Oxfordshire. And and I think and uh, Tom Wedgwood who runs it, I think he lives actually up up on the Pennines. So and they've got a small presence in London. They do plenty of work in London. But there's you know Newton's you know built their business. So I, I think if you've got a view that you don't want to live in London and you want to build a consulting business, I'd crack on and build it where you want to be, because you'll attract the talent, and clients will buy into you regardless of your location. That point as well, I I think around the the attracting talent. So often people think they. Talent only wants to be in in a big city, and I think like you've you've highlighted with your junior hires, but also I assume the senior hires looking around the office, people want more than just the se- the senior hire argument's always been there. Mm. You know, someone like this, you've got you know, fantastic facilities and fantastic in a nice place, and, and all the rest of it, and that, that's kind of obvious. Interestingly, what what's happened in the last three years though has been this change of millennials, you know, younger people early mid-20s just thinking I'm going to go straight for that yeah I think a really interesting observation as well for for firms that are both currently running or anyone looking to start a firm you know in places like the West Country you've got some fantastic universities with people who want to stay don't you and that's definitely the case we have a very close relationship with Bath for example Mm. and at any one time have three placement students from Bath oh really Uh, so it's that's been a really good good relationship just a final thought of someone thinking starting consulting Mm. business you want to try and keep your overhead down so you can spend all your money on the talent <laughs> and, 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 and I'm on processes, tech, um, whereas you kind of want to minimise what you spend on an office and that is a lot easier to do outside of London. And I think that's a very nice segue to your office um, yeah. because, um, like you so say, you're, you're based in a, a in Froome where I assume the rents are phenomenally lower than even Bath, but let alone London. Um, but I do want to turn Bath's to... Bath's probably marginally cheaper, actually. Really? Because it's got such terrible transport infrastructure, nobody can get in or out of it. <laughs> so it's, it's well, that is, and God, you know, because we had a proper look at this. Yeah. So people based in London think it's easy, transport's easy, because yeah. our entire transport system flies and trains people in and out of London. Oh, yeah. And uh, Bath is awful. So yes, you can you you get cheaper offices in Bath because no one can get to them. <laughs> it, and it's funny you say that. I not for today's show, but I, a long-term goal of mine is to to have a business and I'd love to have it based in Bath. And like you say, having now lived here for six months, um, my current client project sees me commuting to Bristol, so I go past this traffic. Um, it is a terrible, it's a beautiful city. Um, move here, but it's a terrible city if you need to get in on a morning. Yeah, so you, you've you got to use the train. Yeah. Essentially, it just doesn't work otherwise. But I think the, the point you make there, and it's something that as a a former Londoner I think you're quite oblivious to is as a Londoner the world is based on airports and train stations and I think to your point when you leave London everyone has a car and actually the accessibility becomes a lot easier because everyone can drive or within a certain distance everyone can drive to Froome very easily yes and so you can actually base yourself almost anywhere within reason as long as it's accessible on that yes. almost a Venn diagram from the key cities near you. And we have quite a few people who live about halfway between here and London. Really? So, which makes a lot of sense because you can they jump, can jump in the car offices, and do, yeah. do 40 minutes listening to 
Mr. Humphreys in the morning yeah. um, and, and come to the office here or pop on a train and go to London. And that works mm. pretty well. So, I mean, James, one of our um, directors, very keen fisherman, lives on the Test Valley. <laughs> uh, so that works pretty well. And um, Laura, our finance director, mm. our finance partner, um, you know, she, 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 again, she lives in Hampshire. So that works pretty well. Whereas there's no way that if you did that, you could drive into a regional city like Bath. It just kill you. Yeah, completely. To bring us on to the office point, I want to use that as a bit of a segue into culture because prior to our recording here, I, I grabbed a coffee in your your sort of staff canteen and I always like looking around those sort of rooms because I think for all the cultural statements on the internet and things people say, you get a lot more from what's in the office. And your office canteen had two things that really appealed to me. Firstly, a darts board, which you're the, you're the first consulting business I've ever seen with a darts board. I'm, I, I played a lot of darts through university. And also what I can only describe as a colleague meme wall, um, which not even knowing the people seem quite funny. Um, for me, that that says a lot about culture, but I'd be interested from yourself as the person at the top of the firm, actually, what steps you've put in place, what culture you're aiming to achieve, and what steps you've put in place that have led your team to feel comfortable enough to create a meme wall and to play what looks like a huge amount of darts games, judging by the number of score slips I saw. I think culture is really, really important. And start with culture when you're, you know, if you're starting business, literally start when you're on your own and you're first person. Don't think that it comes later. You have to start. You really start to, you mean to go on. And, and equally, if you're in a more established business, if you work hard at it, you can change culture positively. So a couple of things. We want people to... In consulting, we all work really long hours. Mm. It's quite important to take little breaks and things. And so, you know, people nip out and get a nice coffee or uh, something to eat, whether that's in London or, or or any of our offices. And then just having here, we, you know, rents are cheaper, we've got a bit more space. We've got our training room here has a ping pong, ping pong table, which is which is brilliant. And uh, we've got the uh, darts board and, and the darts competition. And it's just bit of fun because um, some of the younger guys love taking the piss out of me and others using memes <laughs> and 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 it's it's just it's good and, and and none of those initiatives came from the top you know a good culture someone wants to get a darts ball just get on with it you know it's a bit of fun and uh we've got really nice things like um we've got um vicky who runs the office here and and, and looks after some of our hr you know when her son you know, he's 12, keen footballer. He sometimes has to come and do his homework, you know, in the office before Vicky's finished work, he gets off the school bus. And, you know, so we'll, we'll play ping pong with him. Or, um, he's learnt darts. He's, you want to try and create a culture where people can just be normal at work and, uh, and and not try and pretend to be a different person, you know, when they step step through the door. And, mm. and so, and having a place where people can... You know, a breakout area where people can just relax and do silly things is good. We've got a bake-off competition at the moment, so every oh, Monday yeah. morning it's another fantastic cake. Uh, mostly this is a podcast rather than a video, because so you see my waistline, you'll see that uh, successful <laughs> that's been. Um, do you bake yourself? I, you? I, I, I'm very much uh, firmly at the eating end of the cake spectrum. Yeah. Um, you're more of a ju- you're the judge. Uh, well, my wife watches this, but it's a pre-leath. The, uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very much... Uh, yeah, a, a consumer <laughs> other than a manufacturer. Um, no, it's uh, but st- I think stuff like that's really important. We, mm. um, we take you know our values here, which are to be the best we can possibly be in our client-facing work, constantly pushing ourselves, but also that value of excellence. We're trying to apply that to our firm. So we're doing a thought piece in marketing. You know, we're really trying to push the frontier 
of knowledge in the sector or uh, really add something for our clients. If we're uh, running an interview program for grads, we want that to be the best experience they have and the best process for getting high quality people in. So we really push ourselves on excellence. But also we want to be, you know, we want to um, be supportive of each other. Our professional services can be really hierarchical. Yeah. And to some extent the client's buying a hierarchy. They they want sort of a grey hair to give advice that the recognised projects need to be well managed mm. and so you know decent engagement management and then you you've got the more junior people gathering data analyzing and so forth and and you could probably say the same about law firms and, and accounting firms and and other areas of professional services but but so being in a hierarchical business doesn't mean so that you you know you have to behave like an asshole um yeah you know we're, we're very um sorry i'm not sure we're allowed no to no you just say what you want <laughs> use, that, um, use that phrase it's a, it's a grown-up uh, it's a grown-up podcast it's fine <laughs> um but uh, you know so just just treating each other in a way that just recognizes that people have life outside work and and that there's more important things than work and having a bit of fun that and just making sure that you know when you go home at night you feel that you know what the work you're doing is is work of integrity you know we have our third values around integrity and you can write a, try and write a book on sort of what you should and shouldn't be able to do in a consulting firm but our rule is if if you're doing something you wouldn't want to tell your partner about or your mum and dad about or your kids about, uh, maybe we shouldn't be doing it. And and so th- those three things of being excellent in the work that we do, constantly improving it, looking after it, looking out for each other with, with a sense of fun and, and care and and doing work that we're proud of. That those are yeah, that that underpins the firm and that's where the dartboard fits in. <laughs> not, not not that I can claim to be excellent at darts. Well, maybe after this, we'll have a quick game. We'll, uh, I'm sure you're, you're probably better than me. To that point, you mentioned there around, and I really like it, that culture starts when it's just one of you and it, and it, it grows from there because, in effect, people will come in and they will mirror and emulate what you do. Have you had any challenges or have you had to take any active steps along the journey as you've gone from what was the four of you in the cow shed you mentioned yeah. to now multinational business 75 people in london um, apologies i don't know how many here but a decent size office 35, yeah, so you, you've got multiple sites yeah. you've got over 100 now in the team what steps either actively or more subtly have you have you had to take to maintain that culture so that things like the darts board and the the meme wall continue and haven't been usurped with something that maybe is not the culture you were trying to achieve i think we constantly it's really important to us that we make this and actually we're constantly trying to improve improve the culture and behave better i've done, done stuff earlier in my career which i'm ashamed of now in terms of not treating people as you'd want to be treated yourself one of the things that we did, which was a real precursor to sort of growing and improving the business, was Alex, who's our financial services partner, but also oversees the HR function. Because we're, as a smallish firm, we're still at the stage where we're kind of doubling up those roles. Mm. And he became ruthless about only letting people into the firm who were considerate of others. So it became an absolute acid test. And you know, you could be a quiet person or a very outgoing person. All of that's fine. Uh, you know, all sorts of personality. You know, a good company needs lots of different types of people. But the one thing that everyone has in common is basically considerate. I mean, it's odd. It's, it's front of mind for me because I did an interview this morning. And the lady who came in to be interviewed 
was was a bit rude and standoffish to Vicky, mm-hmm. who greeted her. And, and um, let's say that, I mean, it would have been impolite to have interviewed her for less than half an hour, but I didn't do the full 31 minutes. <laughs> um, you know, we just don't, you know, the position's closed at that point. Yeah. Uh, don't care how talented the person is, you know, how good they would be on the excellence line. If a person, you know, is fundamentally polite, thoughtful, courteous, uh, you know, it's uh, that that's uh, that's not something we can do anything about. And and we, you know, and there probably was the odd person earlier on who kind of perhaps didn't want to go with that cultural change. We when we were part of EY, EY had a very different culture to us. They, were, they took themselves pretty seriously, and uh, so there were probably probably one or two people who, who you know, when we brought ourselves back out of Ernst and Young, perhaps didn't stay the course because, you know, didn't didn't want to buy into something that was. Great client-facing work, but not stuffy. I think that example you give is a really good acid test, and I, I'm a firm believer, like like you highlight there, of you should watch how people treat those who are less important. Is the wrong phrase, but not the person who they they think they need to impress. I'd be curious to that point around. You mentioned your colleague Alex was ruthless on this. Yeah. What are the tests or ways that you assess that? How do you assess that someone is considerate in a way that will fit with your firm in that interview process, which can sometimes be, unfortunately, just a bit contrived um, or potentially. We probably do typically three or four rounds of interviews and Mm. tests as well. And they've done a a pre conversation with Margie's pretty good at detecting whether somebody's courteous or not. But so I don't mean sort of that kind of manners in some sort of posh sense. We want CR to be open to everybody. We just don't want we we want people who, you know, who are who are just thoughtful of others and thank someone for setting up an interview. And it's actually very difficult to hide your personality over four rounds of interviews, you know, and meeting other people in the firm informally as well. So and we've got other little things like you can't join CI unless you've done a normal job. Normal job. So You've worked in a pub, or been a waiter, <laughs> or worked in the harvest, or worked in a care home. Ah, yeah, I got you. So not a. I wasn't sure if you meant you'd not just been a consultant, but you. You're, no, so yeah. it's, uh, you know, we obviously lots of young people join us, age twenty one, twenty two. Yeah, and it doesn't matter, you know, if they come from a very um, privileged background, or you know, have have not had much social advantage, but we do expect everyone to have done a normal job, and and one of the things, one of the reasons for that is because, you know. You can't be a dickhead if you work in a pub. <laughs> I think that might be the quote of the interview. I think that's, uh... um, you know, and you've dealt with 15 people ordering drinks and beer yeah. and the barrel needs changing and all the rest. Of, you know, we, we want people who are practical and and can can deal with that kind of thing. And uh, it's uh, thinking about it, it's a great, it's quite a simple way of looking at it. But like you say, the if you have done one of those jobs, I've done bar jobs, I've done waiting jobs, so I, I know exactly the jobs you talk about, is you have to have been willing to get stuck in to do one of those jobs and yeah. last it out. They're not not always difficult in terms of mentally taxing, but being able to do it. Yeah, like it's, say, exactly. It's more, you know, we, we've got lots of ways of testing people's mental capacity, but we're also testing their tenacity, strength of character. Mm. You're working on something at two in the morning and you screwed it up, a new manager who's under pressure themselves points this out. And, you know, we need people to think, oh, shit, right, better do it right now. <laughs> Plan one till three. Um, no, I'm mm. not saying that happens very often, mm. but it is an attribute that we do need. And somehow people are, are people 
kind of good at that high tensile strength yeah and uh probably make a funny meme of, meme of the manager <laughs> and probably not make that mistake again you know and, and and that's that's the sort of firm we want to be yeah and to that point of memes i i think not only is the the, the taglines i found amusing the, the graphic design capability of your team um, <laughs> yes, I, it's an area of competition i i have to get i have to get uh if i'm if I need a meme doing, then I, I there's one or two people I can call upon. So, <laughs> well, that is I, I am I was in, very impressed at the quality. I must say, and actually to that point around what you you know, what you look for in younger colleagues, particularly, I'd be really interested on and this take this at any level is the advice you find yourself giving off most often to junior colleagues. I don't think I'm the best person in the firm at giving advice around. You know, improving. There's lots of people here who give very good advice about improving their core skills as consultants, mm. and I don't think I'm. I can, you know, obviously, I've been doing this for a long time, so I, I, I can be helpful, but that's probably not my top area. Um, what I will do is I'll do things like we talk about how to have a successful career, whether it's in consulting or not. And one of the things I'll do is I'll say, well, if you've got two timesheets at the end of the week, and one has you know, fifty nine hours on project A. And one hour of of admin, of filling in your timesheet, uh, <laughs> that probably wouldn't take an hour. That one, um, doing some, you know, filling out your expenses and timesheet. Mm. And I'll explain that, that life will reward the person who spent fifty four hours on project A, and an hour meeting a friend from PwC for lunch, and an hour helping out on a recruitment interview, and writing it up afterwards. Probably two hours, and then one hour brainstorming with a colleague on another project. Mm-hmm. And somehow they'll they'll be as good in the 54 hours as the person the other person was in 59. And um we'd have to do their hour of admin too. So maybe I've got more than But the point the point you make is, it's just, is right. That's actually everyone's got a half an hour to an hour a day when they do something else. And it's really healthy to do that. And it builds you around a career. I mean, one of these, you know, we we train people in in business development. Mm. And in HR, from the day they arrive, so because otherwise you could be absolutely brilliant at market entry studies, but not know how to sell one, which is you know so means you kind of you probably get to AD, senior consultant or AD, but mm. you're not going to get you know that. And we've seen other consultants do that, and it's just not not great. So uh, um, you know we really champion people learning a broader skill set and getting mm. involved in in wider aspects of the firm, not just being, uh, you know, focused on, we might all have the odd week, which seems to be, you know, 60 hours on a single project, but that's not a way to build a career. Yeah, and I think that, to your point, the the difference there, it's subtle, but taking those few extra hours, it's amazing how you'll still get the same amount done on your project, but the benefit you make outside it is almost exponentially greater than the hours you'll give and will only continue as you go up and that point around develop the skills in... So I've heard others say BD, but I'm curious, you mentioned their BD and HR. What is it particularly about the HR skill set? Well, if you think about business like this, we've got to, you know, we probably hire 20 to 25 people this year. That's a lot of work. Some of that's got to be done by client-facing members of the team. So you've got to learn how to, we provide mentoring, which is not part of the interview assessment, but every applicant that gets an interview, they get have a mentor here. So that's a way that you can get into. Suddenly, you're, you know, a year ago you were that person, and now yeah. you're on the other side of the firm, helping them answer questions about the firm that they might be too embarrassed to ask 
more senior person. Or, yeah. And then you, you get some training on how to interview. As a junior manager, you have to learn how to appraise as well as be appraised. And so, yeah, all that sort of training, you start it in induction. You don't, young people come here to start their career in business. You don't just learn some technical skills. You, you, you learn a whole range of stuff. And the answer to this might might be the example you just gave. So if it is, tell me and we'll move on. What are the, in the 20 years you've been now with CIL, what are the common mistakes that you see junior colleagues make that hold them back from progressing in their, that career journey? It's really odd, actually, regardless of personality. I think if you're sometimes one's just struggling with an assignment, staying silent is not helpful. You know, you need to sort of, Sometimes you need to work through the pain barrier or Google it and work out how to do it. And that's and that's good and good initiative. But I think, you know, sometimes you'll see a young colleague and they're just clearly stewing. I just think, like, stop. We employ 110 people here. Somebody, somebody somewhere here will either know how to do this or will know somebody who knows how to do it. And so I think, you know, you don't want to be having to ask questions all the time. And, and when you start your career, you kind of, you sort of, I remember, when I started my career at PW, in the first few weeks, you, you didn't know whether you were asking what is an invoice or how do you price an option. You'd, and and I, that, that's quite you know embarrassing side of your career. You just don't know what, what you should know and what you don't know. Yeah, so I think people stewing, that's probably not, typically that doesn't work. You know, we ask and answer questions for a living. So people who, who are used to just only really working on their own, I think that's... Or too embarrassed to ask because they feel they should know how to do something. It's fine. We employ people with a growth mindset, and people with a growth mindset are not too embarrassed to find out how to do something they actually do. Going to the other end of the the firm, so that's obviously your, your more junior colleagues. Yeah, I'm very conscious that you've now been involved in CIL for 20 years, very successfully. I'd be really interested in actually your advice to, I guess I'd call them junior partners, but anyone who's maybe new to a partnership who is looking for looking to follow that as a career path for as long as you have what advice would you or do you find yourself giving to to junior partners here or other from other firms who ask you the same question we tend not to use the term junior partner here and that's because we have quite a process you go through a senior consultant associate director and director mm. so by the time someone's a partner they're pretty senior member of the client facing team what we do, though, there's a point at which you've, you know, maybe you've trained in a consulting firm or maybe you've, come, you know, done something else and come in as a manager. And then, then there's a point, probably around your late 20s, and you're thinking, well, maybe I'd quite like to just do this as a career. I love the work. You know, someone might have had a comment at, with a client or something, but then they'd, or, or perhaps taken a sabbatical. And then there's a sort of, right, okay, so how do I, you know, this is, I'm no longer in my kind of training and learning in business. Mm. So I'm sort of, Take to the next stage. I think one of the things that you have to learn how to do is how you how to make consulting sustainable. So in our case, very very concertina projects, but mostly based in the office. So it's got a positive. Other consulting firms, you know, you might have longer term projects, but a lot of time away from family. So there are different things in different types of consulting. But if you're going to make a career out of it, then actually one of the things you've got to do is find a way of living that has got some balance to it and has got some let up. And so I think that's important. Developing work styles which are, are not just, well, I know how to do this, I'm just going to chuck all the hours into it. Such as? So as you get more senior, you don't need to be in the trench all the time. No harm uh, occasionally getting your 
putties battered with mud, but um, but it's actually quite important to step back. Mm. And you know, if you're on a series of very short projects, you can't actually you know, you've got different teams working for you, so they're not all under pressure continuously. But you can't put yourself under continuous. You, you know, you need to learn how to work with colleagues and and make sure that you know if uh, that you got some let up. In the early part of your consulting career, you learn how to work very productively. Hence, you know, my advice, if someone's sort of stewing and screwing up, you kind of look, just find a colleague who can help you work, mm. do that more productively. Because it's, but, but as you get more senior, of course, some of your work is less productive. You know, we're doing this interview now. It's exactly the sort of thing I should be doing. But I don't know what benefit it will provide for the firm. But I know it's a sort of sensible thing to do, but it, you know, there's probably something more productive I could be doing. Mm. But it's important to do this kind of thing. And but trying to teach someone age 30 that, hold on, I know you've been used to, you know, every hour of the day has been sort of client-facing and productive. Mm. You know, actually to sustainably grow that. And so that in that example of the timesheet of the two juniors, that moves to as you become more senior, it might be, you know, 60 hour week, let's call it 50 hour week, that would be better. In a 50 hour week, a more senior person might spend 10 hours on business development, a proposal, and maybe five hours on something internal, supporting HR and training, and, you know, middle part of the career, then might be 35 hours on projects. And that, that balance, you, so you allow that balance to change, and that does bring, bring something a bit more sustainable into your life. And important to, um, to stay fit, do stuff with your family, and, and all those kind of things. And that last point, actually, around little things like keeping fit doing things outside yeah. of work the the importance of that of across the guests i've spoken to seems to be quite a commonality is the ones who who have managed to stay the course for the long term if you like have found that balance like you say yes um, and that does seem to be a really key point as well i think we have time for it so i want us to bring us back actually and i know i said at the start we'll jump around so no, it's fine. That's um fine. but it's actually to the point around your management buyout because we talked at the right at the start about, I guess, what you'd call your buy-in. Yeah. But another side of the journey that, again, most people that I know just informally in consulting have less sight of is that that buying out of a, a firm. Yes. It'd be great to understand how that decision came about to buy out EY and then actually the process you went through to do it because, again, I think this is an area that very few people have done and therefore even fewer outside of that know what to do. No, and it's good. I mean, one of the things in a consulting firm, firm you've got to have a niche that you're famous for. A you know, larger firm actually probably has a series of niches, except for McKinsey doing strategy for top-end enterprise. That is their niche. It's a funny way of making a living. It's quite a large market because there's a reasonable budget for it. And I think if you'll find yourself in a niche in a larger firm, then you may have that opportunity because in our case, you know, we were helping mostly, you know, 15 years ago, mostly companies under 100 million in value with their growth strategy and gaining private equity investment. And that wasn't really important to Ernst & Young. Ernst & Young was about helping Shell and, yeah. you know, and Barclays Bank or something. And so, you know, so we were very excited about what we were doing, but, you know, best will in the world just wasn't very important to EY and, mm. and that's not a criticism of them at all it, it just you know that they're in a market with four players and their partners are focused on servicing those major multinational 
very large businesses and government departments and so forth. You know, mm. there's vast chunks of work that can only go to four houses, and there's consulting that goes alongside that. So, in our case, we found ourselves in a very large organisation, very good to us, very decent, but best one in the world, which is never going to be important to them. And so that gave us that opportunity. And so I think, whereas I think if you were doing something mainstream with their banking clients, I think that would have been more difficult because like that would they feel that was core and intrinsic. To them. So certainly in the context of London, Ernst & Young, we felt like a you know a little niche of, of a firm. So that gave us the right to the conversation. We did actually start the conversation with, guys, you kind of need to buy us out. You need to buy us out now. And they kind of thought, not sure we want to do that. And then we said, well, in which case we're going to buy you out. So it does come a point. So we were in that position where we did, we did have 49% of the equity. And so, you know, actually it was um, at some point it needed to be resolved one way or another. And, uh, you know, maybe they had a good look at me and Giles. Well, I don't want those guys as partners of EY. So <laughs> I don't know. But, uh, you know, that's, that, that gave us that opportunity to have that conversation. I think what often is the case is somebody might have trained in a larger firm and become interested in a niche that they can grow and can see there's a nice, you know, there's some nice economics around that and some fun and they're enjoying it. And often at that point, I think somebody probably, you know, I did it with the blessing of the firm, but you you kind of have to leave and set up on your own mm. is typically how it happens. Whereas we were probably a bit unusual having the opportunity to buy ourselves out. We did have a brand name and that is, so while we were, we were CIL, member of Ernst & Young in small letters. And so we were, we were still known in the marketplace as CIL. And that definitely helped. Whereas I think, yes, more normal, so Dom, our chairman, was at Deloitte and wanted to develop a particular kind of operational consulting capability and decided to sort of branch out and start his own firm. And I think that is the more more normal route. Mm. We, we were we were perhaps lucky to be able to buy out established, established mm. business. What was it that led you to decide to have that conversation you mentioned there that you and giles went to ey and said you need to buy us out what was it was it a growth thing was it a time thing what was it that led you to decide right now is the time to have that conversation so chris had retired who'd founded the company and the other partners were all older keen to retire so giles and i were much younger sort of new mm. generation really and so he gave a gave a retirement opportunity for a couple of other senior colleagues, Jeff and Eileen. And so that was kind of, that was part of the, part of the thinking the timing was right. And we very much got, had a lot of benefit from the first couple of years at EY. And then after that, we were sort of more or less under our own steam and say not that important to them. So we needed mm. to make a decision one way or another. Some of the partners were extremely cross that we were sold. Your partner, sorry. Or no, 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 no. We were all perfectly <laughs> happy about it. But, but, but some of the guys that were doing more in our kind of part, in our sort of arena with private mm. equity clients, and they could see it was a growth arena. And then EY tried to start a business, trying to do the same sort of thing, but they, mm. we didn't have the skills to build it in the house. And they ended up, um, and then more recently, they, they bought a very good sort of business called Parthenon. So, so they have come back into the arena, but we probably had a little window of an opportunity to buy it out. We, we did that. Fantastic. So last couple of questions here, sure. Seb. And these are ones that I ask all of my guests, um, and I'm always intrigued as much for the similarities as the differences. Yeah. And the first one, I think there's going to be a few because 
you have a huge bookshelf in your staff kitchen um, one of the other things that I saw in there and and the question here is is very much around books and this is take it as you wish but what books have you found yourself gifting or recommending most over your time with CIL? I really like Bounce Mm -hmm. by Matthew Zaid and it's two reasons the first is that it really gives you a sense that if you work hard at something and really push yourself you can get very good at it and it dispels the idea of genius and shows that we can all be geniuses if we work hard enough at the thing that we want to be good at. You know, I'm not saying there isn't some natural ability. There's probably our profession tends to attract people who um, who like finding out about stuff and can get bored quickly and probably quite like exams because quite like the pressure of them, which is another way of saying they might not get out of bed if it wasn't for the exam mm. um, or project pressure. So, so there's certain certain things that you know. And in the same way, you know, quick look at me suggests that I'm probably not going to be an Olympic runner. So that we might have some natural abilities, which mean we're more likely one thing or another. And thereafter, it's all about just hard work. And the second reason is that we spend a lot of time with, with growth companies, helping them understand their competitive advantage. And the biggest single source of competitive advantage for us as individuals and for the firms that we work for is that aggressive, cumulative learning and getting better at things and really pushing the edge of what you do. And I think Bounce really describes that very well. So it's both useful for our personal development and I think it's also extremely useful for our consulting work because if we can detect that in their, in our clients and encourage it, they will be successful. Fantastic. As well, hopefully, as ourselves. Brilliant. A great recommendation. Funnily enough, I did notice that on your shelf. So, you know, really good one. I haven't read it myself, but I'm off on holiday um, actually straight after this. So I'll put that on my reading list. I, I, can I give a second recommendation? Give as, give as many as you so want. I'm also a big fan of, if you've got a book like that, and actually maybe on holiday you should be reading a novel. <laughs> I, um, I tend to f- just, uh, uh, I do tend to flick between so terrible novels and books like this, but go on. Is... I actually think if you found an author that you think, oh, yeah, I'd really like to get my head around that concept, I do think if they've done a TED talk, it's extremely efficient. And I'll sometimes listen to the same TED talk two or three times, really learn a lot from it, possibly more than reading a book. So I, I think that's, um, you know, I th- I, and, and that's quite a good way for someone listening to this. If you can download a few podcasts or get a chance to listen to it, so TED Talks on something that's that's pertinent to their career or wider life. I am a real fan of that. I do think... Um, what was the the last TED Talk or what's the, the one that's really wowed you this year? We've become very interested in, in sort of mental health at CI, both in terms of our corporate social responsibility, mm. but also looking after one another's mental health. And I can't, I can't remember the name of the professor, but it's, it's um, an American, um, very successful American professor who had schizophrenia throughout her career and, and she just talks about how she dealt with that. And I thought, that's brilliant because that's, that's, you know, that's a serious illness and the fact that someone had had a high-achieving career while having that illness, I thought, was brilliant. And I'd probably never read a book about it, but 20 minutes of her talking, was, it you know helped me to see even quite serious mental health conditions in a different way, so I thought it was interesting. Well, I will... I will look it up. I'll, I'll see if I can find you the link. Yeah, if you can find it, send it over. If not, I I will use those keywords. I'll make sure I found the right one. I'll put it in the show notes so that anyone else can listen to it as well. And then the 
The very last question, Seb, and it's three questions in one, it's a bit cheeky, is you have three people in front of you. You have one person just starting their career in consulting. You have one who's four to five to six years in. Um, so sort of the middle grades, as, as you might summarize it. And then one who's on the cusp of, a, of becoming partner. So they're in that yep. director level as I'd know it. And the question is, is very simple. It's, it's what one piece of advice would you give to each of them? So I'd say the first one, learn what you enjoy. And the second one, work with other people who enjoy the things you don't enjoy so that you can spend more time on the stuff you do enjoy. And I think for the person on the cusp of becoming partner, I would say it's a re- this is a really difficult point in your career. It, does get, it gets better from here and just keep, keep persevering because they'll have already learned about what they enjoy, learned about how to work with other people. <laughs> And uh, and I'd say to all of them, keep daydreaming, because uh, if you don't daydream, you don't visualise the future. If you don't do that, you're not going to get there. Well, I think that's a, a fantastic place for us to to end. So, and a really good bit of advice there. So, thank you very much for for making the time for this. Uh, it's great to catch up, find out all about CIL. Great to come down and see where you're based, given your very local and around the corner from myself. And I think the only question left, as you, you alluded to earlier, is if people want to find out more about yourself, want to find out more about CIL, where would you point them to? Where can they get in touch? Yeah, I'm delighted for anyone to get in touch. My email address is schambers at cilconsultants.com and, uh, and you can probably find that on the website and uh, get in touch with me or Alice. And uh, Alice is my um, executive assistant and uh, be really happy to pick up with you. And uh, Nick, it's been a huge pleasure. Um, sorry, I've been wittering on and using bad language a little bit, but I've, I've thoroughly <laughs> enjoyed it. So thank you for giving me this opportunity. Fantastic, sir. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And all that's left to say is all the best for the rest of your week. Thank you, same to you. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb in Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.